Mike Rowe here with an important question. Do you have a nose? Do you have a mouth? If you answered yes to either of those questions, you need to cover those holes up with a MicroWorks mask. That's right, I'm selling masks to raise money for MicroWorks. Look, I don't know how you feel about the politics of wearing a mask, and frankly, I don't want to know. But since you can't go anywhere these days without one, you might as well buy one from MicroWorks. Why? Because MicroWorks masks are made in the USA, and 100% of the proceeds will help train the next generation of skilled workers. They're also ridiculously comfortable and breathtakingly stylish and easily adjustable for enormous heads like mine. Mostly, though, they're a great way for you to help us close America's skills gap. Check out the inventory at microworks.org shop. That's microworks.org shop. This is the way I heard it. High in the hills of a town without pity, a stubborn sun slowly set on a warm September evening as a young starlet walked up the shoulder of a canyon road and onto the property of the biggest name in town. She was apprehensive, understandably, partly because it was getting dark, partly because she was trespassing, and partly because she was going to kill someone. For the record, the starlet was not violent by nature, but desperate times call for desperate measures. The head of the studio, a feckless fool without taste or common sense, had cut her out of the film that would have made her famous. In the blink of an eye, her long-anticipated debut on the silver screen was reduced to a pile of worthless celluloid on the cutting room floor. Could she have called HR? Could she have lodged a formal complaint with the studio? No. This betrayal could not be remedied with a hashtag and a Me Too. This was personal. And so the young starlet steeled herself for the task at hand, double-checked the contents of her purse, and approached the sprawling home of the biggest name in town. Five stories up, the legendary icon looked down as the starlet approached. Her appearance was not exactly a surprise, Beautiful girls often came to this very spot, usually around sunset. This one, however, was a real looker. Twenty-four, flaxen hair, alabaster skin, eyes bluer than a Montana sky, and a body that wouldn't quit. Oh yes, girls like her were drawn to this address like moths to flames. Pretty young things with stars in their eyes, happy to barter everything they had for the one thing they didn't. This one was more than welcome up here on the top floor of the legendary address. Five stories down, the starlet was smiling in spite of her dark purpose. It felt good to fight back. She recalled the role that launched her career, a small but essential part in a Broadway production of Hamlet. It was her character who, at the king's demand, introduced the all-important poisoned cup into the pivotal scene in Act Five a poison cup intended for Hamlet, but consumed accidentally by Gertrude, the king's wife and Hamlet's mother. Oh yes, she remembered that performance very well. It was a performance worthy of an encore. But enough ruminating. Back to the task at hand. She knew the way in. She knew her target was on the top floor. In her mind's eye, she could see herself ascending each step carefully, one at a time, up top, the view would be breathtaking. The sun was now beneath the horizon, 
and the lights of Tinseltown would be twinkling all the way to the Pacific, but she would not be distracted. Her role tonight was that of a cold-blooded killer, and she would play the part to the best of her ability. She would betray nothing of her true intentions. She would simply wait till the moment was right, and then she would show the biggest name in town what real power looked like. The starlet checked the contents of her purse one more time and confirmed that everything was exactly where it should be. Then she began her careful climb up to the fifth story and delivered a performance worthy of an Oscar. Three days later, a hiker found the mangled body in a nearby ravine. Detectives were called, but you didn't have to be a hard-boiled gumshoe or a sunset boulevard Seamus to figure out who done it. The cops knew all about the starlet's abrupt removal from 13 women, her first and last major motion picture. They knew all about the financial difficulties that followed and the naked photographs for which she was paid to pose. But it was the contents of her purse that closed the case moments after it was opened, specifically a short note that read, I'm afraid I'm a coward. I'm sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. And so the curtain fell on the final act of Peg and Whistle, a gifted actress who left a promising stage career to become a famous movie star. Alas, the only performance for which she's still remembered is the one she delivered on that warm September evening in 1932 at a famous address on the rocky slopes of Mount Lee, high in the hills of a town without pity. It was there, at the end of a canyon road called Beechwood, that poor Peg, her spirit broken by empty promises and shattered dreams, made good on her promise to kill someone by climbing the rungs of a rickety ladder, scrambling onto the top of the giant H and throwing herself off the Hollywood sign. It was, after all, the biggest name in town. Anyway, that's the way I heard it. The story you just heard is true, at least the way I heard it. Thank you, Chuck Klausmeyer, for producing this podcast. Matthew Zipkin, thank you for hitting the buttons over here at One Union Recording Studios. Thank you, gentle listener, for listening. And if you haven't subscribed and you would prefer not to miss a new episode, consider yourself officially invited to do that very thing. Talk to you next week.